welcome to Prescription Advocacy. I'm Ariel Troster. And I'm Neely kaplan Merce. How are you doing, Neely? Ah, I'm all right, actually. It's, um, yeah, it's been quite a bumpy ride in terms of um, avoiding burnout because, you know, there's so many things that could lead to burnout, but I'm, I'm really doing okay. How about you? I'm okay. You know, I uh, got a little freaked out that they might close schools in Ottawa uh, again. And I threw up my shoulder because I was stressed about that. Because, of course, my body always responds when I'm stressed. But uh, so far, schools seem to be open. Although, you know, as we have this conversation, they just announced like a major lockdown in uh, Toronto, Peel, a whole bunch of other areas that are not where you and I live, but are still in Ontario. And I know it affects my parents and a lot of our relatives. So it's uh, it's a stressful time for people. Yeah, it's a hard time for, for people. Uh, so many of my patients are in tears. I had a medical student who was working with me for the last two weeks. And as it is always the case, it's a lot of mental health in primary care, but, you know, we'd have people who are just coming in for their allergy shots or just, you know, coming in for something that's totally not supposed to be even more than just like a, a very simple thing, but then they would burst into tears and it's all around the pandemic, adjusting to the pandemic, not getting along well with spouses or partners while everybody is on top of each other in the pandemic dealing with the stresses of kids and school and the teachers are struggling and the healthcare workers are struggling. Everybody's struggling. And uh, yeah, this is not a normal way to live. You know, I just keep saying it's not forever. It's just for now, but people don't really know when it's going to end. None of us do. Right. Yeah. And in a child's experience, it feels like forever. Um, For some of our seniors who are locked in, it is actually forever, you know, when they're 93 or older and, um, and it may be actually the end of their lives, not being able to see their family members. And yeah, so this is our good sort of moment to introduce Dr. Jesse Gold, who we spoke with about mental health, about the impact of the pandemic on people's lives. Uh, and when we spoke to her, it was just after the US election. So we were also talking a little bit about the impact of politics on people's mental health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really easy to say, reach out, get help, you know, to people who are having a tough time. But uh, as uh, as Dr. Jesse Gold discusses in her interview, there sometimes isn't a place to go. So this is definitely a place where we that we definitely need to see change. And in our interview with Dr. Gold, it's our first time going beyond the borders from Canada into the States in terms of the person that we're speaking with. And um, that is to say that, you know, obviously mental health issues are similar in the States and in Canada. Our healthcare systems are different. And we talk a little bit about that and and how that um, affects the type of care that we can provide. But many of the challenges that we have in Canada are similar to challenges in the States because we don't have publicly funded mental health care the way that we should. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap and we point out some of the differences. Yeah, so we hope you all enjoy this interview. It lights a fire in your belly to again make change. <laughs> Every one of our guests seems to do that for me. And just a reminder to our listeners, you can always follow us on Twitter at RX Advocacy. Enjoy. Hello and welcome. Hi Jesse, nice to meet you. Hi, thanks for having me. 
this is the first time that we've had a non-Canadian guest, so you, you're a guest of honor. But tell us a little bit about yourself because our, our listeners won't know who you are. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a psychiatrist in the United States. I live in St. Louis, Missouri, so in the middle of the United States. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, I also am the director of wellness engagement and outreach there. So I work on faculty and staff and mental health and wellness for the university and hospital in our department. So inviting you to join us today is because of course mental health issues aren't very different in the states than they are in canada and kind of globally so this is a cool opportunity to to talk to you about what has been happening to the global mental health during this pandemic and and particularly to women so what do you um feel is is the most important and passionate thing that we can talk about when it comes to mental health and the pandemic yeah, I mean, I think you could say that mental health in all of the world wasn't great before the pandemic. We've been having increases in depression and anxiety and like suicidal thoughts, especially in the United States before the pandemic. And then the pandemic has had obviously additional stressors. So like job loss, um, having your kids at home for school, um, death and grief and all of that is a uh, emotional stressor and can cause depression and anxiety. And I know the United States data pretty well and what we've been seeing in the United States, at least the data that we saw from the centers of disease control, like out of just kind of in June is like the depression rates were in like the a third of people were having symptoms of depression and anxiety, which is really high. And when you looked more like specifically at groups that were at higher risk um, in depression, anxiety, symptoms of trauma, like suicidal thoughts in the last month, young adults were higher, um, uh, frontline workers were higher, um, Hispanic populations and black populations were higher, and um, unpaid caregivers were higher. Um, and then if you sort of look across a lot of studies, especially even the studies of frontline caregivers um, and frontline workers, women consistently bear out as a particularly at-risk population. I think in part because they bear the brunt of additional stressors, uh, responsibilities that come with being a woman um, and household responsibilities that fall to them sometimes um, and being a caregiver. And I think that has been additionally stressful with people at home or family members at home or kids at home or trying to do all that with doing your job is particularly hard. Well, no kidding. <laughs> um, one of the themes of this uh, podcast has really been about that double load, that triple load that women are taking on um, and speaking to people who have become advocates in the midst of all of this. So. What are the things that have been keeping you up at night during this pandemic? I know you, you know, you've been talking about how uh, mental health of women in general has been in decline. How's your mental health been? <laughs> yeah, I mean, things that keep me up. I mean, I think it's been, it comes and goes. I think like anybody, 
I have had times where I've been more anxious or times where I've been more stressed. I see a therapist weekly and I have for before the pandemic and I have for quite some time and believe very strongly in the importance of therapy, especially as a mental health professional, but especially as a medical professional as well. And we'll speak about it regularly because I think it's important. I wouldn't say that I have had any stressors worse than anybody else. Um, but it's been a different work environment for me. I work at home now and do telehealth and see all of my patients virtually. And that's really different for someone who is used to seeing outpatient psychiatry patients, you know, most days of the week and uh, being a very extroverted people person. It's really different to see people virtually. And I think people think it's very similar to seeing patients in person for psychiatrists because we just talk, but it's quite different. Um, you don't get the same personal connection. I think I feel really different when I'm talking to someone over a screen and it doesn't feel as connected. So I think months and months of that has definitely been different for me. Today, I had a patient who said to me uh, something like, you know, Dr. Kalpenbrath, I, 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 can't, I can't be burned out because I haven't been at work since the pandemic began. And I sort of stopped her. I said, well, why can't you be burned out from all the stuff that you're doing outside of what used to be your day job and, um, you know, taking care of children who have special needs, who... Um, didn't have the supports that they would normally have because schools were closed and, you know, now finally schools open again. And, and I think some women, patients of mine are crashing now, now that, um, that they can stop and pause and breathe. They're, they're kind of, they're falling apart after running a marathon. Yeah. I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. Like at the beginning, there's a lot of adrenaline to sort of just do the things that you need to do, right? Like uh, take care of your family, do the job you have to be doing, you know, make sure people are safe and you can run on the adrenaline. You cannot sleep for some time. You can feel anxious for some time. And sometimes you can even like not notice how stressed you are with the little bit of stress. You can sort of like feel it and adjust to it, but it doesn't take over your life. And then all of a sudden you're exhausted and there wasn't like a particular trigger or a particular reason. And it just is like, why am I exhausted? But it was actually those like six months of things that added up and added up and added up to make you exhausted. Or, you know, you finally had that moment to breathe. Um, I think people had that a little bit in between, um, like waves of the pandemic as well, like with less cases or being able to get out and socialize a bit and not have to be inside and feeling a little bit more connected to people and then sort of having to go back and isolate again or have regulations again in some places has been really hard. And having that kind of brings you back to having a realization that you have, you know, anxiety or depression or whatever. So I do think you, when you do have a second to go, oh, that's what I'm feeling, or that has been what I'm experiencing, it makes sense that you would all of a sudden notice when you were just kind of running on fumes before that. Mm -hmm. In in Canada, you know, obviously there's lots of comparisons in terms of our, our healthcare systems, and, and we have what is meant to be universal healthcare in Canada, but ultimately psychiatry uh, is mostly 
consults and psychopharmacology, but not psychotherapy. And so when people in Canada need to see a therapist, there ends up being a, a discrepancy in who can afford to have a therapist. So it ends up being private psychologists or other psychotherapists. And, you know, the people who need the therapy aren't necessarily going to be able to have access to it or access to enough therapy. They, they might be able to get some subsidized therapy through some of our systems, but that's usually short term. Who do people go to in the States? How do they do it? I assume that it, it's the same issue. It's similarly challenging. I think, you know, we don't have universal health care, which I'm sure you've heard. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, the things that are similar to that. So for us, like Medicaid, which is based on financial resources or Medicare, which are based on is based on age, um, is our most similar uh, thing to universal health care uh, for those particular groups. And most therapists don't take those because they don't give uh, high enough reimbursement rates. And it's very hard to stay open if you take those. So they take private insurances. And um, a lot of therapists don't even take insurance and only take, you know, cash and out of pocket. And so that makes it particularly hard so that, you know, if you're somebody who's in the community and you um, are on Medicaid, or you don't even have insurance and you can't afford to pay out of pocket, you would have a really hard time finding someone to see for therapy because there aren't a lot of like community resources or community therapists or people you can see that way. And so you really need to have either good insurance coverage or good access to financial resources um, to be able to afford therapy out of pocket, um, which is complicated. And in the States, we have also had some difficulty where insurance companies will um, charge more for <laughs> therapy, like co-pays, like the amount you have to pay out of your pocket, even though you have insurance, than they would for uh, physical health, like a primary care copay. And it's, it's technically against uh, the law, but they do it anyway. And so because like people don't necessarily, you know, go to a lawyer and charge them with like doing something illegal and so they can get away with it a lot of the time. And so it's been an issue where people end up paying a lot of money out of pocket, um, even if they have insurance to see someone for mental health. Um, and then that can be a big barrier or pretty discouraging because why would you want to see someone if it's really expensive or a really big drain on your financial resources, um, especially, you know, during a pandemic when you're trying to decide between like feeding your family and getting mental health help for yourself. So it's, it's very complicated. It's not a good system, has never been a good system. When we um, got rid of uh, like institutions really in the United States. We were supposed to build up community mental health resources and the presidents after that um, didn't do it. And so we just don't have a really robust community mental health system here. And so people are pretty, um, there's just not a lot and it's really hard and it makes it challenging for people and especially during a time like this where there's a lot of need and we see people and want to help and you know there's not a lot of places to send them you know absolutely so yeah. so Delia I know 
you see similar things in your practice. I, you know, even someone like me, who I'm not a doctor, uh, but I do have a an excellent job. But even my own insurance, I think it only pays three hundred dollars a year or something towards therapy, which is not even. It's like one and a half appointment with a good uh, psychologist. So I guess the question to both of you is. What options are out there for people who are struggling with their health in this pandemic and cannot afford to see a therapist right now? Or what do you recommend or what would you like to see? Yeah, I mean, those are kind of different questions for me. I mean, I think it's hard because obviously if you're if you're at a level where you really need care, I want people to get care no matter what. And that's a really hard thing to ask of someone, you know? Um, But if you're really, really struggling and really in need, especially if you're at a risk of hurting yourself or someone else, or you really can't function, then you have to get help and there's nothing you can do about it, right? Um, And that is why like in the US, especially like our emergency rooms and our psychiatric inpatient units end up pretty full because that's what happens people really wait for crisis care um, instead of preventative care for mental health. Um, I think but that's the same here too. The CEO of the Children's Hospital here said something like 70% of kids, youth who present to the emergency department for mental health care are, are back there, you know, a f- few months later or whatever. And But that's because there is nothing, it, it's not that there wouldn't be services in the community, but there's nothing that people can afford in the community. Mm-hmm. So you just bounce back again to the emergency room. Yeah, it's super disheartening because when, you know, you work on the inpatient unit and you like get somebody to feel better and you're like excited that you got somebody to feel better and then you um, discharge them like in the U.S. like to the streets without care or you you can't really get them follow up. It's like, you know, they're going to come back and it's really disappointing and it's very hard to watch and witness and feel part of a system that's that broken. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there are like apps and, you know, things like that, that people are trying to do to expand access. I think people need to be careful with some of those companies because I would say, you know, they're not always great with your data and it's not always confidential. And sometimes you sign things you don't know, sort of like Facebook. And, um, you know, sometimes the people aren't as trained as you would imagine that they would be, but there is a benefit to the expansion of services and the access that they provide. I definitely think that, and I do think they are cheaper um, you know, and that helps people. I also think that there are um, nonprofits that are trying to help, you know, cover the cost for people in this country, at least. And I think there probably are where you guys are too. But, um, and I think that's helpful and really great. And I would encourage other people to, I've been trying to get more investment in that sort of thing. I think it's important. Um, if I would see things change, I mean, We need to change the pipeline of people going into mental health, which is going to be like encouraging it as a career path, which is probably a financial incentive thing in some capacity, because we also want a mental health workforce that looks like the people that need it, Um, which means that if people have like loans from school and things like that, like you might have in the United States, um, 
you want them to be able to afford to pay them off by going into a mental health field. So you don't want to like not be able to pay it off because you chose to go into like social work or um, psychology or psychiatry. And so I think the incentive needs to be there. I think um, we need to have better reimbursement and um, fix the way that our insurance structure works. We have to expand access um, to community resources and sort of like intermediate care, which we don't have a lot of. I'm sure you guys probably struggle with this too, which is like the people that are not sick enough to be in a hospital, but are probably too sick to be seen every week, every month or two by an outpatient psychiatrist. And we would send them to like something like an intensive outpatient program where they would do groups and be seen by a therapist. Those are pretty rare around here, even though they should be um, more common. They work really well. People like them when they do them, just don't have a lot of access to them. And insurance companies don't always cover them. I think we could benefit with more of that. I think with telehealth, expanding access is also something that, you know, could help and happen. But I do think you have to keep in mind that a lot of these people we're talking about don't have access to tablets and phones and Wi-Fi and (laughs) internet. And so you can't just assume that they can get on an appointment, you know? So... All of those issues are the same in Canada. The only difference is that like for me as a family doctor, I am filling that gap, that Mm -hmm. intermediate gap. So I have patients who have been coming to see me for primary mental health care weekly or every two weeks or monthly for like the, the last 10 years. And that's covered by our provincial health plan. So that is a way that patients who need that support for some of them, it's their only conversation with another human being for an entire week or, you know, and it used to be their only outing. And I've actually opened up my office. So some of those patients are still coming to see me during the pandemic because it's so important for them to have human contact. And, but that's, that is covered by our provincial healthcare plan because I'm a family doctor and that's part of what is paid for. And I provide trauma informed care, but if they didn't have a family doctor who does that kind of mental health care, then they'd be on a wait list for family services, has subsidized counseling. So there are some organizations that people can get some of that support from, but not not the continuity of care. And, and like when we think about trauma-informed care, one of the key things is that relationship and that that relationship isn't going to end after a year of therapy, right? For somebody to really open themselves up to a conversation and then to be told that, you know, well, you only get 10 sessions with me, so goodbye would be um, impossible for, for many of my patients who are really struggling with their mental health. So that's something that I guess we, yeah, we have that in Canada and you don't have that in the States. And, um, but still we get stuck with the, well, there's two things. There's the stigma of mental health, which um, persists, uh, even though there are always these campaigns to say that, you know, um, we can talk about mental health, but in fact, like there's still so much stigma, um, including for doctors, because doctors are heavily um, surveyed when when they, you know, admit that they themselves have struggled with anxiety or depression. Um, yeah, well, there's a lot of stigma for, you know, healthcare professionals who are dealing with mental health problems and with burnout themselves, 
to be honest about that. And I can't imagine being a healthcare worker in the midst of this pandemic and not be struggling with mental health. I mean, you all must just be so tired on top of everything else. I know for me, poor sleep is what triggers my depression. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a thing that is a universal problem, the stigma towards mental health. And that's, you know, it's different in different countries, different cultures for different reasons, but it's a universal problem. Um, And for medical professionals, has a lot to do with the culture of medicine and what it and you know this like sort of stoicism and uh taking care of others before you take care of yourself kind of mentality which only works for so long but there's a perceived weakness i think for getting help and then also a fear at least in the united states there's a fear that if you get help it'll affect your licensing because some of the states ask on licensing questionnaires like if you've ever had mental health treatment and it's very unclear what they do with those answers and you know possibly patients could see the answers possibly it could result in your license being monitored in some different capacity and I think people get pretty anxious about getting treatment at all because of it Um, and again it can lead to people this sort of culture of silence or not getting treatment until crisis or physicians have one of the highest suicide rates of any profession in part because of that sort of mentality, I think. And uh, the pandemic has brought on significant stressors for frontline workers um, for what they're seeing, what they're doing, sort of like uh, sheer capacity and volume of like workload, the amount of people who are struggling and sick and the way the work looks. I think people have never really seen that many people die on a shift before, have never really dealt with, you know, death without a family member present for the person, you know, like rationing care and things like that, because we don't have enough um, equipment for the amount of patients or rationing your own like protective equipment or being afraid that you could get an illness and die from it. And in the United States, at least like over 1700 healthcare workers have died of COVID. And I think we don't necessarily always think about that as part of the risk of our job, despite, I guess it, it is a part of a risk of our job, but really think about dying. Um, so there's a lot of added risks of COVID that have made it particularly stressful. And then I think you add on the political stress of like people not necessarily believing that um, COVID is a thing or that they want to wear masks or that science is real and it becomes additionally stressful to be a healthcare worker. My stress response is to just do more activism, right? To, you know, when I saw that we weren't going to get the supports that we needed in the community. Um, I took sort of the collective grief and I just said, no, we, we are going to talk about this and we're going to do something about it. Oh, my, my point from before, my second point, the other thing that um, is a barrier to people getting mental health care is our insurance companies are always asking, not, not for us as physicians, but when we're filling in forms and reports for our patients, if we say that a patient has ever suffered from anything. Like I had one poor patient and he had one panic attack once in a very, you know, specific circumstance and his insurance, he was applying for life insurance and it turned him down because he had had one experience that would be deemed a mental health crisis. And that that's also true for physicians. And like you said, um, yeah, for, for our licensing, I do know of um, several doctors who have been scrutinized because of 
admitting to the to the mental health issues and then um it's not necessarily that their license would be taken away from them but there's you know we have uh physician wellness services that are available to doctors in each province and and across canada and um but there's a wariness of using those kinds of services because if you say to any kind of medical organization that you need help, um, then you will be scrutinized. And then, you know, who's going to ask for help? But to go back to what you had said initially, of course, all of us working in healthcare should have our own therapist. And I certainly have the entire time that I've done my my training and, and my career. And um, and it's important. It's, it is how we take care of ourselves, right? It's So we're not hypocrites when we say that it's important to take care of yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's partially why I mean, I, I talk about it and why I talk about it on social media and stuff, too. I mean, I think it's really important that I mean, as a as a mental health provider who also sees healthcare providers as patients, it would feel very hypocritical for me to be saying like, you know, go get help and come see me for help when I am acting like everything is hunky dory and I've never sought help before myself. And I think it makes a difference, you know, because people will be like, well, your patients can read your Twitter. And I'm like, good, you know, like, I'm glad they can read my Twitter. Like, they should know I see a therapist. I don't say anything I'm uncomfortable with. I, I don't say like all of the reasons and my deepest, darkest secrets on there. But I say like, hey, this is what we talked about today and it was helpful and maybe it'll help you or, you know, something like that. And I think that sort of thing is just part of normalizing it. It would be really bad if I was in this profession and didn't believe in normalizing my own profession. Mm. It's really interesting because I think the thing all three of us have in common is being incredibly forthright online when it comes to some of these struggles. And uh, very often that's held up against women and we're told that it's unprofessional when in fact, it's incredibly humanizing. And I'm really grateful when health professionals speak out in that way. And it, you know, in many ways, just being transparent about your own mental health is such a strong form of advocacy. Yeah, like, because women are expected to be emotional in a negative way, sort of, (laughs) whereas men being emotional is like seen as a weakness. And that's why men don't often get treatment. And that's a whole other issue with like toxic masculinity. But like women have this like perception, there's this like perception that being emotional is like expected, but that makes us be you know, not as good as leaders and things like that. And so a better woman leader is one that is not emotional for some reason. Um, But then that person has other names associated with them that people would use um, that I won't use on your podcast. Um, But I think, you know, it's not real. And I think if you read most of the literature, the best leaders are vulnerable. And your team and people around you are much more likely to respect you if you had some degree of humanity to you. And I don't think that means you have to be like, hi, I'm Jesse, I have this diagnosis. And this is what I do for it. And this is my medication regimen. And you know, all of that stuff. I don't think that that's what we always mean when we say normalizing mental health. I think we also mean like, hey, like today was hard and like I didn't sleep well and this is why. And it's really hard to have my work be at home and to be lonely or, you know, these kind of things are all statements of wellness and mental health that normalize it. It doesn't have to be diagnostic, you know? 
Well, we probably have to wrap up our conversation, but um, I really appreciate that you took the time to speak with us. And there's a lot of work that we need to do in terms of mental health care across Canada, across the States and around the world. So let's keep having these kind of interdisciplinary, international conversations. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Prescription Advocacy, co-hosted by Dr. Neely Kaplan-Mirth and Ariel Troster, produced by Alana Stewart. You can visit us on Twitter at rxadvocacy or on our website at rxadvocacy.ca, where you'll find links to the people that we spoke with and the information that they provided and also a full list of credits. Thank you for listening.